Welcome to this message from Journey Church. Our hope is that you'd encounter God and His purpose for your journey. Be sure to visit us online at www.journeykc.com. We're getting ready in the next installment of Better Before Bigger. How many of you guys were here last week? I know it was, it was icy and all, or whatever it was, and cold. But uh, for those of you guys who weren't, let me give you just a quick recap. Uh, I talked about building the inner man. And if you missed it, you need to go back and listen to it because it really sets up where we're going today. It would be really good if you did that. Today, I want to talk about breaking inner vows. Uh, But let me just catch you up with a story I told last week. It's a story of Chick-fil-A. How many of you guys uh, believe uh, Chick-fil-A is the best chicken all around? Okay. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Too bad they're not open today. I'm fasting anyway, so it wouldn't matter. But uh, in the 1990s, Boston Chicken, which would later become Boston Market, was really the first competition that Chick-fil-A ever had in their industry. And so Boston Chicken had aggressive uh, growth plans. They wanted to go bigger, faster, bigger, faster. They wanted to be a billion-dollar company in sales by the year 2000. And this really made Chick-fil-A nervous because they were the first real competition and they were really aggressive. And so Chick-fil-A huddled up in their conference room, all the vice presidents, presidents of marketing and all the big wigs and executives and Truett Cathy, the founder and the owner, was there as well. And they all began to talk back and forth, begin to argue, how can we grow bigger, faster? How can we go bigger, faster, bigger, faster, bigger, faster? And Truett Cathy, the owner, sat at the end of the conference table and most of the people said that he kind of looked disinterested in the meeting. And then finally, as they were all arguing together, he began to just methodically pound his fist on the conference room table, not saying a word, until he had everyone's attention and they all looked at him and he said this. He said, I'm sick and tired of hearing how we need to go bigger, faster. He said, what we need to be talking about is how can we get better? He said, if we get better, our customers will demand that we get bigger. And that shifted the whole conversation. It shifted the whole marketing scheme. And by the year 2000, Boston Market was filing for bankruptcy and Chick-fil-A hit a billion dollars in sales for the first time ever. Now, we apply that to our own lives. How many of you guys would just admit that there are times in your own life where you're just trying to go more, more, bigger, faster, bigger, faster, maybe in your business, bigger, faster, bigger, faster. In church world, we have that tendency as well to go bigger, faster. How can we go bigger, faster, bigger, faster? And I can almost just picture the Holy Spirit at the end of the conference room table of our inner life, pounding that fist on the desk and saying, what would happen if we focus on making our inner life better? And I can tell you what would happen, healthy things grow. And if you're healthy, the bigger will take care of itself. But if you're unhealthy, bad things happen. And so some of the things we learned last week out of the book of Daniel, as Daniel came into a time of fasting and he was taken uh, taken by the Babylonians into exile from his hometown, that uh, we learned that better before bigger equals promotion and blessing. How many of you guys would like some promotion and blessing in your life? Better before bigger equals promotion and blessing. But we learned from Nebuchadnezzar, the king who took him out of there, he, he had desires just to keep going bigger, bigger, build more, build more, bigger, bigger. He switched it around and he put bigger before better. He put bigger before better. And the result of bigger before better is a breaking point and later a humiliation. How many of you guys have ever experienced that in your life where you've tried to build bigger and bigger and bigger and all of a sudden you built too big for what your inner life could sustain? Your outer life was building something that your inner life could not keep up with. Okay, and, and so we asked that question. I'm gonna put it up on the screen again. What does my inner life need to look like 
to sustain what my outer life wants to build this year in 2017? What does my inner life need to look like? What kind of things do I need to have in play? What, what kind of health do I need to have internally? What kind of relationships do I need? What kind of things do I need to be cultivating in my inner life to sustain what my outer life wants to build? Because how many of you guys have big goals this year? Anybody have some big goals? We, this is a good goal time. We have all these big goals. The question is, what does your inner life look like now? And if you actually accomplish those goals, will your inner life be able to keep up with what your outer life is building? And, and to understand this concept... We've got to understand that we are made up of not just one part. It's not just the part you see here. It's not even two parts. Some people try to say, well, soul and body. We are made up of three parts, spirit, soul, and body. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 says this. It says it like this. It says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. So we're not two parts. We're not one part. We're three parts. Watchman Nee puts it this way. He says, God dwells in the spirit, self dwells in the soul, and senses dwell in the body. We're made up of three parts. And so what we're talking about today is our inner life, okay? Not our body. We're talking about the inner life that we have to deal with. And our goal is for the spirit of God. How many guys, your goal is for the spirit of God to take over every part of you, every part of you. That's our goal as believers. And so, but, but we don't always do that. Uh, to live bigger externally, we have to live better internally. That's the key thought from last week. So uh, let me share with you some thoughts that I heard from Robert Morris recently. These are very, very powerful along these lines. He says this, whenever salvation is talked about in scripture, in the past tense, if you're you're reading it and it talks about salvation, like you have been saved, then that is talking about our spirit because our spirit is has been saved. Whenever you, if you're a believer in this place, your spirit has been saved. It's past tense. Whenever the Bible talks about uh, salvation in the, in the present tense, like being saved, that's actually talking about not your spirit being saved because your spirit has been saved. It's talking about your soul because our soul is being transformed. So our soul is being made whole. It's being transformed. Whenever it talks about salvation in the future tense, it's really talking about, yes, ultimate salvation, but it's really talking about our body when it talks about the resurrection. Because how many of you guys know that our bodies right now aren't maybe going up? Sometimes as we get older, they go down. But the Bible says that there will be a resurrection, and one day our bodies will be made completely whole and completely new. And why is that important? It's important because the battle is not in your spirit. If you have an issue in your life right now, it's not in your spirit. Your spirit has been saved. It's not in your body. Your body will be resurrected. The battle is in your soul. It's in your mind, your will, and emotions. And how many of you guys would just admit that you have trouble sometimes in your soul, in your mind, will, and emotions? And all of us do. All of us have trouble in those areas of our life. So if you're going to win a battle, it's going to be in your soul. Let me show you what an unbeliever or someone who's not following Jesus, what order these things come in, what priority or what trumps another. An unbeliever's life looks like this, their body, their soul, and then their spirit. So their senses reign over their soul and they just kind of are moved by their senses, whatever the the body is is urging them to do, then it moves into their soul and their spirit is dead. And, And so, you know, sometimes you might have an unbeliever who has, through great effort and great strength, mustered the ability to move their soul on top ahead of their body in order. And so they have mastered their body. They have mastered their senses. They are making wise choices. They are doing, they've 
staved off their senses. We would call these people good people. If you look at their life, they're making good choices. They're making good decisions. They seem like, you know, what's the difference between this person and an unbeliever? That seems like they're making similar, they seem like they have integrity. They seem all this. They have mustered enough strength to put their soul in charge of their body. But their spirit is still dead. We call them good people because they're doing good things. But here, here's what a carnal or fleshly Christian looks like, which a lot of us have been here before too. It's when our soul is over our spirit and then comes our body. We have our spirit made alive, but our soul is still in reigning in charge of our spirit, and it really is dictating where our life is going. Most of us live there a lot of the time, where our mind, will, and emotions really are in control of what our life is doing. But our desire internally to, to build up the inner man is for our spirit to rule over our soul, and then for that to rule over our body. So this is what a spirit-controlled Christian looks like, a spirit-led, is our spirit is reigning over our soul, and, and which is also reigning over our body. And that's our ultimate goal. And so we need to deal with our soul. Our soul is where the action is at. Now, when our soul, if we're a carnal Christian, our soul is reigning over our spirit, and we make soulish decisions. How many of you guys have ever made mind, will, emotional decisions, even as a believer, that turned out to not be so good? It was a soulish decision. How many of you guys have ever had an external wound of any kind? You needed a Band-Aid for, you needed uh, some sort. I, let me tell you, how many of you guys have had a lot more? How many of you guys had a broken bone or something like that? Uh, yeah, it's, it's painful. We know what to do with that. Let me, let me share a quick story. Years ago, I was in construction, and I was walking under... Uh, one of the areas where some guys were putting up some ceiling joists, some two by six, 20 foot ceiling joists, about 20 foot up. And one of the guys pulled one of the sides off of the ledge and it came swinging down, hit me in the back of the head, knocked me down to the ground, split my head open, blood gushing out everywhere. Isn't that awesome, kids? It's just blood just gushing out everything. It was awesome. And so uh, my dad, if you, some of you guys know my dad. My dad is a very strong work ethic. You know, uh, you got a 15-minute break. Okay, time's up. Now I'm back to work. And so he's looking at it. It's still a couple hours to lunch. He's like, we, we don't have lunch break for another couple hours. Let's stick a stocking cap over that to try to pressure treat the wound. And we'll keep working. And on lunch break, we'll deal with that. And so blood's like trickling down my neck. And I'm working for another couple hours. Lunch break comes. And finally, they, they take off the stocking cap. And just the look on their faces as much have been blood squirting out everywhere. It was awesome. And finally, they're like, okay, it's lunch break. Let's take you to the doctor. And so they take me to the doctor and uh, they start to give me stitches. Well, uh, evidently they didn't numb the pain in any way, shape or form because later on the doctors would say that halfway through as I felt the needles running through my scalp for the first three stitches. And I'm like, this can't be normal. And then finally I heard them say, oops, you never want a doctor to say oops, right? And so they, yeah, so then I, I got stitches. And so I say that because if you get hurt externally, we know what to do for the most part. You're supposed to treat it. You put a bandage on it. You put stitches in it. You set the bone. We know how to fix external wounds. But don't you guys know that we also have internal wounds? Everybody here has had internal wounds in their life. Every single person. And the problem with internal wounds is we don't really know how to treat them. Maybe if somebody's hurt you, or you've done, you don't really know how to treat the internal wound. And so here's the tendency that most people end up doing, with, maybe without even realizing it, when we have an internal wound, we make 
a promise to ourselves. Jimmy Evans talks about this. He's a marriage guy and a pastor out of, out of uh, Texas. He talks a lot about this, and we end up making what's called inner vows to ourselves. Let me tell you what an inner vow is. An inner vow is a promise that we make to ourselves. It's usually in response to a negative situation. It's usually in response to maybe a negative relationship we have. And so we make this inner vow, inner promise in our heart. And it usually goes something like this. I will always, dot, 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 or I will never. So it could look like this. I will never be like my dad because of what he did. I will never be like my mom. I will never treat my kids that way. Sometimes it happens even when we're a kid and we don't even realize it. It's not like we write out a contract and we wrote it out. Sometimes it just happens. We don't even realize it's guiding our life, but it is guiding our life. It's just this subconscious thing that we have made an inner promise to ourselves that I will never be like them. I will never be like my parents because and, and, they were arguing and I will never argue. And so then you get into a marriage and you've made this inner vow that I am never going to argue and you never know how to deal effectively with conflict in your marriage because you made an inner vow. It could be an inner vow like I will never make my kids work like I was made to work when I was a kid. I will never, maybe you had hand-me-downs when you were a kid and you had an embarrassing moment and you made an inner vow, my kids will never wear hand-me-downs. And so you work to do whatever you can to make sure your kids don't have hand-me-downs. Maybe your parents made a mistake in the area of discipline or something and you say, I will never discipline my kids that way. And you end up going from one extreme to the other. And we all make these inner vows to ourselves, these inner promises. Let me just share a couple of lighthearted ones with you that, that I've recognized in my own life. Several years ago, I was in my early 20s, and a friend of mine was in his early 30s. And he came to me and he said, uh, I'm going to run a half marathon. Would you want to run it with me? And at the time, I hated running. And he was like, yeah, I'm going to run it. I'm looking at it. And I'm thinking, he's in his 30s. He's like really old. And uh, yeah, and I'm like, he's in his third. And so I'm thinking in my, my brain, I'm thinking if he can do it and he's old, then I can do it. And so I decided I was going to do it. I didn't like running. So I started training. I trained for three months. I mean, it was grueling. I hated it, uh, but I, I pushed through it. And then race day came. It was a, a November day. It was, it was sleeting. It was like icy. It was cold. And I was completely sick. I had a congested cough, which is never good for running any amount, let alone in the rain and the sleet. And so I ran that half marathon. I finished, but it was one of the most torturous events that I went through. And when I got done, I said, I am never running a half marathon again. I am never running. And I made a little inner vow. And it wasn't a big deal, but it was just a little promise to myself. How many of you guys have made something like that? Like, I'm never doing that again. So 10, so year, 10, 15 years passed, Jason uh, called her guy in our church. He comes up and he says, hey, I'm going to be running a half marathon. We decided to run a half marathon. You want to run it with me? And by this time, you get runner's amnesia. How many of you guys have ever had runner's amnesia? You forget how bad it was. And uh, so somewhere along there, the inner vow wore off, and I ended up running another one. But that inner vow kept me from running a half marathon for well over a decade. Again, I've run a couple since, but there's little promises that we make to ourselves. Let me give you another small example. Last year, we were in the 21-day fast, and me and my wife and several of you guys fasted full food for 21 days, didn't have any food for 21 days, and that's what we're doing again this year. And I got done with that. And by the way, Satan appeared to me many times in many different forms. It was usually in the form of a Whopper, a pizza, and I would just have to rebuke it. I mean, what else are you supposed to do? And so uh, 
But I got done with the 21-day fast, and literally, there was something in me that was like, I'm never doing a 21-day full food fast again. I'm never doing that. And what happens? God had to, I got with God this year, and I brought that little vow to him, and he's like, no, we're doing this again. And I'm like, okay. But it was just an example about how easy it is to make little inner promises to ourselves. I was uh, in a season of ministry many, many years ago where I'd been hurt. How many of you guys have ever been hurt maybe in ministry or church world? I mean, everybody has a story, it seems like. And I made a little promise to myself. I am never going to be hurt in that way again. I'm never going to let somebody that close again. I'm never. Here's the line right here. And I'll let people in this far, but I'm not going to let anybody any further. I made a little inner vow. And God had to deal with me about that inner vow that I made. And he said, Sean, that's you. here's the thing. If you want to be in ministry, let me just say it this way. If you want to serve Jesus at all, you cannot make a vow like that. If you want to live for Christ, you cannot make a vow like that. Like, I will not let anybody closer than this. Because if you're going to serve Jesus, you're going to get your feelings hurt. You're going to be hurt by other people. There's going to be situations that happen. You have to, and so I had to bust off that inner vow. And God said, Sean, you, you need to have thick skin for what comes your way and still maintain a soft heart. That's good advice for anybody. Sometimes you've got to have a thick skin for what anybody says because people are going to say things, but you've got to have a soft heart to still love people at the same time. So there was a little inner vow that had to be broken off my life. Maybe you went to a church when you were growing up and maybe they believed in spiritual gifts or something like that. And it was like kind of got a little crazy or something. And you made a little inner vow. I'm never going to a church that believes in that stuff again. And God is saying, you know, what if I have a whole life uh, that I want you to experience that you need to break into? But because of a little inner vow, we keep ourselves from God's best for our life. As a youth pastor, many years ago, I was a youth pastor I said this multiple times. I will never be a senior pastor. I said it multiple times out of my mouth. I will never be a senior pastor. My wife, Becca, she said, I will never be a senior pastor's wife. How many of you guys have ever made vows like that? And then all of a sudden you find yourself doing that, you know? What is that? And because I, I decided as a youth pastor, it's the best gig in the world. You just basically decide whatever you want to do, make it a youth event, and you get to do it, right? And so I didn't want to deal with adults. And so... Uh, but God had to break that inner vow off my life. There was a situation many, many years ago where I had to leave a ministry situation because there were some things going on in the leadership that wasn't right. And it was very painful uh, to leave that. It was a very long process. It was very hard. And I felt, here's how I felt. I felt trapped. How many of you guys have ever felt trapped in a situation before? Maybe in a business or a job or even a relationship. Sometimes you can feel that. I felt trapped. <laughs> And when I finally got out of that situation, I told myself, I will never let myself be put in a situation like that again where I feel trapped. So much so that two years went by, God started to plant the seeds for this church in my heart. And one of the biggest hurdles for this church ever, this church would not have been started had this inner vow not been broken off. Uh, this, this hurdle that I had in my heart, this inner vow that I will not, because I knew that if I was going to plant a church, it would be at least 10 years of commitment to a church to get it even off the ground. And here we are after 10 years. But I was unwilling to commit and plant roots in one spot because of that inner vow that I never want to feel like I'm in a situation that I can't unplug from. Now I'm all in because the inner vow is broken. This is where we're at forever, I believe. But here, here's the thing. Those inner vows start to guide our life, and here's what they do even more powerfully. They keep you from God's best in your life. 
And if you make an inner vow, like if you've been hurt by a relationship before, I'm not talking about something going back to something that would put you in physical danger or something that's unhealthy. What I'm talking about is something that's repairable biblically. And if you have made an inner vow, you cannot come this, this close anymore. I'm holding you at arm's length and that person or that situation or that thing is not gonna get closer. What you've done is you've limited really the depth of your relationships. You are missing out on a richness of relationships because of an inner vow. And we put on a mask, we become fake before people because of an inner vow that says, I will not let you get close. You saw a flaw in me once and I will never let you see it again. That's the inner vows that we make. How many of you guys can recognize inner vows that you've made in your heart before? Am I the only one or is it just, okay. Uh, I was the only one in the second service too. So um, we've all made them. I know this lady many years ago who she grew up in a situation where they didn't have a lot. They had many uh, kids in the house. They didn't have a lot. There wasn't a lot to go around. And so she decided that when she grew up, she was not gonna be poor. She was not gonna do without And so she decided, she made an inner vow in her heart that I am not going to be poor and I'm going to marry somebody rich so I never have to think about this again. And she did. She went out and she found somebody and she married a a rich guy and she went out and she would spend like crazy. She would spend like crazy. What was she doing? She was reinforcing that inner vow that I will never have to do without in my life. The marriage was a horrible marriage. It fell apart. The relationship wasn't built on anything and it all, they're divorced to this day. All because of an inner vow that, that begins to control our life. Now you might say, but aren't those inner vows good? Because they're helping protect us from things. They're helping us protect us from getting hurt again or putting us in bad situations. Maybe, but here's the thing. Here's the problem with inner vows. When you make an inner vow, what you are effectively saying is that I am now God over that area of my life. That now I don't need you, God. I've got this part figured out and you can't speak into this part of my life. I've already decided, even maybe for years and years and years, uh, that, that I am now Lord of my life in that area. I am in charge. It's like an unauthorized New Year's resolution that you make in your heart. Now, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verse 19 to 20 says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So if you are Christ, there is no longer any part of your heart, any part of your life, any territory in your inner life that does not belong to him or that he shouldn't have access to. And when we make an inner vow, we are saying, no, I'm God of this this area of my life. And one of the most dangerous things that happens when you make an inner vow is that you are no longer teachable in that area of your life. It doesn't matter if a friend comes to you, you're like, no, I've got this figured out, and you are no longer teachable. It doesn't matter if a, a trusted friend or a family or your spouse or a book or a podcast or a pastor, it doesn't matter. You're no longer teachable. Let me ask you this question. It, have you ever found yourself stuck in a cycle of pain? Maybe it's relationally or situationally. I guarantee you, if you find yourself facing a similar pain, no matter where you go, no matter what relationship you're with, it's the result of an inner vow you've made somewhere. And so this is a very, very big and weighty deal. And it becomes, what happens when you make an inner vow and it begins to take on a life of its own, it becomes a stronghold in your life. Inner vows become strongholds in our life. What are strongholds? Uh, Dictionary says this, a place that has been fortified to protect from attack. So get the picture of this happening in your inner life. A place that you've carved out that is fortified to protect from anybody who would attack it. 
Any friend, any spouse, any word from God, any scripture, even God himself, you have protected it so that any attack against your inner vow and your paradigm and your worldview is protected. So it is a place of security or survival. A stronghold could be an addiction. Maybe you have, it's a way that you numb the pain, but now it's become a stronghold in your life. And you fortified that. And if anybody had an argument against it, you've already figured out your responses to every argument they come up with because you are ready. It becomes your place of security. It's where you retreat to. It it can be an addiction. It can be a sin. It can be something that you withhold from God. It can be a demonic oppression in your life that becomes a stronghold and sets itself up in your inner life and it hinders your progress with God and your progress in life. Now, there is a, let me give you a picture of what this looks like. So just, just let this soak in, this picture I'm going to give you of what this looks like in your inner life. There's a place in Israel called Masada. Masada literally means fortress. And it was a place in Israel, just uh, southwest of the Dead Sea in the Judean desert. And it, on the top, you can see a picture. It's not a very good picture, but it's kind of a zoomed out aerial picture. On the top, there are 30 acres on the top. And on one side, it's 1,300 foot drop. It's this massive rising out of a plateau out of the plains, basically. And it was, this was the ultimate fortress. Uh, This was in in the 30s BC, Herod the Great decided that if there was ever a revolt in Jerusalem or somebody to try to overtake Jerusalem, he would run to this place, Masada, and he uh, would take his government there and his army, and they would hold out on top of this Masada, this fortress. And so what they did is they built a double wall system around it to protect it with fortresses everywhere to defend it. It'd be impossible to get up there. Uh, They built 40,000 cubic square feet of storage place for food. They made its own cistern in there. It was the ultimate prepper's paradise. So those of you guys who are preppers, this was it. They could hold out forever. And so they had all of these uh, provisions. They had a, a, a place up there big enough to hold the royal court so that the government could still function. I want you to keep, keep that point in mind because they were willing to put the government on top of their stronghold. How many times in our life do we make the government of our life and we run it from our stronghold? when it should be ran from Christ. And so that's what they did. They had enough to, to have the whole government run up there. There was no getting up. If you were, imagine if you were an invading army trying to get up on top of this thing. There was only one way up. It was called the snake path. And it was this little uh, windy road that was cut into the side of it that wound all the way up there. Can you imagine an army trying to make its way on that little snake path? up? There was no way. It was the ultimate fortress. It was the ultimate stronghold. And it's so tough to get up that as the final, even now, the uh, Israel Defense Forces, when they do boot camp and they graduate their boot camp trainees, the very last assignment after they've gone through all of boot camp is they have to try to climb this thing at night. And when they get up to the top, they basically uh, have a ceremony at the top and torchlight, and they make this confession that Masada will never fall again. And that's kind of like the final ceremony. It's like this grueling task, even for like special forces or army guys to do this. So it was an amazing, amazing fortress. Now, here's the thing about this. Uh, In AD 70, Jerusalem fell. And the Romans came over and took over Jerusalem. Some of you guys, historians, you'll, you'll think about all of this. They came over and they took over. And according to the historian Josephus, that there were 960 people who escaped Jerusalem and went up to Masada. 
And they had food up there, they had water up there, and they were holding out. Well, the 10th Legion of the Roman Guard heard about this, and they wanted to extinguish all of them and to to stop the rebellion. So they came and they laid siege here at the bottom of Masada. And they ended up building their own wall system around Masada to keep any food or water out. And the problem was it didn't work because they didn't know that they had food and water stored up there. And so one month went by and they were still doing fine. Two months went by and they were still doing fine. Three months went by and they're still doing fine. They have all this food and all this water. So finally, the Romans decide enough is enough. We're going to find a way up. And if you can see, and just in this little picture, you see this little ridge coming down the side of the mountain here, the side of that. The Romans actually built a mountain on the side of the mountain to get up to the top. They took shovel load by shovel load all the way to the up. They built this ridge so they could take a battering ram up. And as they were building this mountain on the side of the mountain, this is how impenetrable this is. As they were building the mountain on the side of the mountain, the Jews up on the top would throw rocks down on the workers and try to kill them. Until finally, the Romans took Jewish prisoners that they had and put them out there to build it so that the Jews stopped throwing rocks at their own brothers. Well, eventually, the Romans did make it through after building this massive mountain to get up on the top. They did make it through. The problem was the 960 on the top had made a suicide pact with one another. They decided that they would rather be dead than to be caught by the Romans. And so the way that they would do this is every man would have to go back to his house and he would kill his family. And they would come back and they selected 10 people by roll of the dice who would be the final 10 men. And after every man went back to his family and killed his family, those 10 men killed all of the rest. And then they rolled the dice again and they selected one person who would kill the other nine. And he did. He killed the other nine and then killed himself. There was only just a handful of people that actually escaped. It's an amazing story that actually happened, uh, even though there's some debate about some of the details. Now, the reason I say all this is because this is what it's like for us. I want you to picture this being internal as a stronghold, as an inner vow. This is what it looks like as an inner vow. It's our place of security. It's our place of safety. No one can get up to the top. We've built it to last. We have provisions up in our stronghold to last as long as we need. We have arguments for every argument that comes against it. In fact, we would go to our grave defending our stronghold. That's how intense strongholds are. And strongholds have to be broken. What happens when God comes to lay seeds to your stronghold? Well, if you've made it so difficult to get up and you've shut off every voice and you're living in your own and you set up your own government, even God can't get up to the top of your stronghold. So here's the deal. I was walking this week. And I was, as I was walking, I was praying. And as I was walking, I came across and I saw this big pile of rocks. And I took a picture of it just so you could see it. I came up to this big pile of rocks. And as I was looking at it off in the distance, I instantly heard God say this. He said this. He said, turn your strongholds into altars. Turn your inner vows, your strongholds. In, what, what are altars? They're places of worship. They're places of faith, places of sacrifice. What would happen if we took this immense stronghold, this immense uh, fortification, and we changed it and we said, God, here's my place of sacrifice. Instead of it being a stronghold, it's going to be a place of sacrifice. Turn your strongholds into altars. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, if you guys are following along, there's, there's a story many of you guys know that starts back in Genesis of Abraham. Abraham's an old man. He's too old to have kids. His wife's too old to have kids. God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to have you be a father of many nations. And Abraham says, I'm old. 
My wife's old. We can't have kids. How can I? I don't have any kids. How could I be a father of many nations? And God says, I'll do a miracle. You, here's the promise. You'll be a father of many nations. And so years go by, and the promise still isn't fulfilled. But he's got this. And I, I may be taking a little bit of license here, but I think that there's some truth to this. I wonder if Abraham and Sarah at some point made an inner vow in their heart. And they said, you know what? This is our promise now. See, God promised it to them for the nations, but they, this, is, this is our thing. And we will do whatever it takes to have this child. And because of that promise they made, that, they actually acted upon that. And when God wasn't evidently coming through in their timeline, Sarah says to Abraham, I, I've got a maidservant here. Why don't you take her and ha- we'll have a kid through her? And so they did that and there was an Ishmael. And Ishmael was born and God said, that's not what I said. That was not the promise. I think Ishmael was Abraham saying to God, I'll be Lord of this area of my life. Thank you very much. I'll be God. He made an inner vow that said, I'm going to have a kid one way or the other. God planned this idea in my heart. I don't care if I have to make it happen my own way. I'll have a kid one way or the other. And so Ishmael was, I'll, I'll be Lord of my life in this area, God. And God said, no, that's not it. So many years passed, and then Isaac is born. Isaac is born. Isaac was the promise. And, and so all of a sudden, what, what he tried to do in his own way, now he has Isaac. I still think the inner vow was there, though. I still think the inner vow of this is mine, this is my thing, this is the, God, this is mine. How do I know that? Because God asked him to do something unbelievable that we can't even, I can't even fathom why God would do this. I can't even theologically sort all this out. But God did this. This tells me that there was an inner vow somewhere where Abraham was still hanging on to this as his. It was an inner vow. This is mine, and, and you can't have it. And so God asked him to do something unbelievable. God asked him to take his son Isaac, who was now probably in his early teens, and to take him up on the mountain and to actually lay him on an altar and to sacrifice him before God. Sacrifice him before God. And Abraham, it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, it says, By faith, Abraham... When he was tested, he offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he he considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, which figuratively, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. What was happening? Abraham took a stronghold in his life, and he laid it down on the altar. And he said, God, ultimately, this is your domain. This is your thing. We need to turn our strongholds into altars. How, how do we do that? I'm just going to wrap up with this. How do we do that? Three quick things, okay? I'm not going to spend very long on this at all. Don't need to. Three quick things. The first thing we need to do is we have to identify our inner vows. Identify our inner vows. Some of us, we've already got three or four or ten, maybe that we've already know. Okay, that's an inner vow for me. Yeah, some of those things you mentioned, I, I've got a few more in my heart that I've already made. We have to identify. And if nothing comes to mind right now, I'm not telling you to dig stuff up, but I am saying we need to open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit and ask the Holy Spirit, say, Holy Spirit, maybe you're seeing fruit in your life that you don't like, and you're saying, I don't know why. Open yourself up to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, is there an inner vow that I've made that's keeping me on this cycle of pain? Is there an inner vow? And ask the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit's our guide. The Holy Spirit's our comforter. And so we identify what the vow is. The second thing we need to do is we have to renounce the vow. Now, what does renounce mean? Well, the opposite of renounce is to agree and accept. So when we renounce a vow, we're disowning that. We're saying, this is not me anymore. 
and we're forsaking the vow. So we renounce it and we say, I renounce that, that is not mine anymore. And the third thing is very simple. We invite Jesus to come back and to be Lord over that area of our life again. Because here's what I know. God rarely shows up without an invitation. Sometimes he'll pop in from time to time. But Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. But just because Jesus is knocking doesn't mean he's getting let in. So we open up the door and we say, God, come into this area, to the stronghold, and I'm making it into an altar. Would you guys stand up with me as we are actually going to practice this this morning? You might just put yourself in a posture to listen. I know we've got a lot of things going on in our minds as the first of the year and maybe even a lot of things happening in this service. Just close your eyes and bow your heads for just a moment if you can. And take just a moment and ask the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, speak to me right now. I want to... If there's something I need to deal with, some stronghold that needs to be broken off of my life, some inner vow that I've made that's controlling my life or maybe it's guiding my life in ways I don't want. Maybe I've put an area of my life where I've said, no, thank you very much. I'll be Lord of that area of my life. And you've made an inner vow somewhere. I'm never gonna be like that or I'm not gonna let that person in or I'm not gonna be poor, whatever that is. Holy Spirit, reveal those things to us right now so that we can deal with them and so that we can allow you to be let into every part of our life. And then we renounce that. And and why don't you guys just pray this with me? Just say, right now, I renounce any inner vows that have tried to control my life where I've been Lord over my life and I put them under the blood of Jesus and under his authority in Jesus' name. Amen. We renounce those things right now and we disown them, and we forsake them. We say we do not have an attachment to them anymore. And now, Holy Spirit, Jesus, we invite you right now. We open the door of our heart. Just just see yourself right now with Jesus knocking at the door of your inner life. See yourself opening the door right now, and see Jesus walk into that area that has been such a stronghold, and see him coming in and taking. I can just see the relief coming on your face as you as you just release this burden back to him and say, Jesus, this is your area. This is your house. And see him coming through the door and becoming Lord over that area of our life again. Lord, we thank you so much. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, let me speak to those of you guys in this place. Maybe you've never followed Jesus before. Maybe you've never said yes to Jesus. Here's what I want to say to you this morning. Jesus is still knocking at your door too. He's, out, he's knocking at your door. But just because he's knocking at your door, you still have to let him in. You still have to open the door. And here's the deal about Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. What does that mean? That means everything that we have done or will do that keeps us back from a right relationship with God, Jesus, the Bible says that he became our sin on the cross and he died in our place so that he could clear the way for us to have a brand new real relationship with God. There's nothing that hinders because of Jesus. And he rose from the dead to defeat sin once and for all. And he knocks at your door today and he says, follow me, enter eternal life. And you may be here in this place and you say, I've never said yes to Jesus, but I can hear Jesus knocking at my door this morning. I wanna pray for you in just a minute if that's you. Maybe you're here today and you just say, I've been around church, I've heard these things before. I just don't know where I stand before God right now. You can walk out of this place being sure of where you stand before God. You can say yes, fresh and anew to God. Maybe at one point you were walking with Jesus, but you know for sure that for whatever reason, you are not following Jesus. You are not where you should be right now. 
Today, you can make things right with God. You can get things right with God, and you can come back to the Father's house. If you're any one of those people that I talked about, I want to pray for you. But I need to know if we need to take a moment out of this service to do that. So if that's you, would you just lift up your hand and put it right back down, and I'll pray for you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Many hands all over. Thank you back there. All over the building. All over the building. Thank you, guys. And I'm going to help you pray. The Bible says what we believe in our heart, we need to confess with our mouth. It means that, yes, we're believing something, but there's something so important about us speaking that out. And I'll help you do that right now. And I'd like everybody to pray with us. Say these words. Say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I believe you took my place. I believe you wiped away my sin. I believe you rose from the dead. And I confess that you are now Lord of all of my life and that I will follow you all of my days. I receive grace by faith in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you so much that you are the God who brings new beginnings. Listen, if you prayed that prayer, I want you to understand the Bible says that everything that's happened before this moment is, is no longer exists and that you are a brand new creation. Nothing in your past. It's like you have new DNA right now. You have a brand new start. There's nothing in your past that can have a hold on you because now you are in Christ and it's as if you have a brand new life and in fact you do. I want you to walk out in that revelation. Lord, we thank you so much that you can come and take over areas of our life. And Lord, we just surrender and we yield to that. And we say every part of our life is yours. We open the door today in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's celebrate with one more song. If you prayed that prayer, uh, be sure to grab one of these What's Next uh, pamphlets here on the front of the speakers or back at the offering box. Can we just celebrate? I believe there's probably well over 20 people who've responded to the altar call between all three services. Can we just celebrate Jesus for that? Amen. All right. Tomorrow night, discover the journey. Thursday night, TNT. We'll see you then. You guys are We hope you enjoyed this week's message. For more information about Journey Church or to browse our media library, visit us online at journeykc.com.